what not the podcast. I got the, all these theology emails, and so as far as I can tell, the best way to do this is to just answer them all for the world, and I'll try to send you a note when I answer your question. If you have theology questions, oh, th- so we're going to talk about uh, the rapture. Uh, a top greatest hits from Luther. What about Luther's anti-Jewish writings? How is repentance a gift? How is salvation and our free will, how do those things work out? And what do we think about the prosperity gospel? I got questions from Sweden, from Germany, from Canada, and from somewhere else. This is really a lot of fun. So hopefully you enjoy uh, this, whatnot, the podcast, and uh, you can send in your questions at wolfmuller.co slash contact and send me your questions as well. Thanks. God's peace be with you. Here's a great, great, great question about the end times and about the rapture. Gunnis from Perth, Western Australia writes, Dear Brian, regarding the end times, in Matthew, it appears that Jesus, when using the story of Noah, is indicating that those who are saved and the ones left behind are the ones left behind, and the remainder are taken away for judgment. How do we reconcile this with Thessalonians, where St. Paul takes that those being saved will meet the Lord in the air? Thanks, Gunnis. Gunnis, thank you for the question. I, I don't think that... Here's a question about the end times and the rapture. Dear Brian, regarding the end times... In Matthew, it appears that Jesus, when using the story of Noah, is indicating that those who are saved are the ones left behind, and the remainder are taken away for judgment. How do we reconcile this with Thessalonians, where St. Paul states that those being saved will meet the Lord in the air? Thanks, Gannis, Perth, Western Australia. Thanks, Gannis, for the question. The text in question is Matthew 24, starting with, let's see, verse 36 here. We're right in the middle of Jesus' last discourse, the Olivet Discourse. It's named the Olivet Discourse because Jesus is speaking these words in a sermon on top of the Mount of Olives. It's on Holy Tuesday, so it's Jesus' last day of public teaching, just a few days before the crucifixion. And Jesus had this big fight with the Pharisees and Sadducees in the temple, And then they left the temple, they went down the valley, up the side of the Mount of Olives, and they sat there to rest. And as they were leaving Jerusalem, the disciples were looking at the foundation stones of the temple, which is huge, big rocks. And Jesus said, you see these stones? Not one will be left on another. And so when they, they're kind of wondering about this for the 15 minutes it takes to walk up the side of the Mount of Olives, and then they sit down, and they're probably looking back over the Mount of Olives, maybe watching the sunset over the city. It's a beautiful scene. And the disciples come and ask Jesus, tell us, what will be the, when will these things happen? In other words, when will Jerusalem be thrown down? And what will be the sign of the coming of the end of the age? That's two very distinct questions, but I think as far as the disciples were concerned, it was all going to happen on the same day. Jerusalem would be destroyed the same day the world comes to an end. We're living actually between those two events. The first, the destruction of Jerusalem was on August the 10th in the year 70 AD, and we're still waiting for the Lord's return in glory. Jesus kind of answers both of those questions together, but here he's talking about the coming of the last day, the great day of judgment. So picking up in verse 36, Jesus says, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. 
For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding in the mill, one will be taken, the other left. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. So Jesus is warning about the last day as this great day of division. There's really two themes that Jesus puts forth when it comes to talking about the last day. The theme of division, which is a theme of judgment, and the theme of resurrection. All will be raised and there will be a judgment and a great separation. Now, Gannis wants to know what this has to do with the text in Thessalonians, where Paul's talking about meeting the Lord in the air. Uh, for that, we go to Second Thessalonians, First uh, Thessalonians, chapter four, verse thirteen and following, where Paul says, "But I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with Him those who sleep in Jesus." For this we say to you by a word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. What a beautiful and glorious text. Now, uh, here, here Gunnis has a, a few thoughts about this. Uh, the first is that this passage about one being left and the other being taken, I used to say that the taking that Jesus is referring to there is just like the flood took them away in judgment. In fact, I, in a video, said that the same Greek word is used, but it's not true. I'm not sure where I picked that up. There's two different words that are, that are being used there. It's true that Jesus uses the picture of the flood, and everyone was there, marrying and given in marriage. They thought everything was going to be fine until the flood came and destroyed those who were not ready. And so the coming of the Son of Man will be that Lord Jesus will come at a completely unexpected hour, and those who are not in the ark of faith, in the ark of the Christian church, those who believe in Jesus, will be, will be destroyed. Uh, in Thessalonians, and, and so that text in, in Matthew, Jesus is, is kind of pushing on that theme of division and saying that that last day will be a day of division and of judgment and destruction for those who are not ready for it. The Thessalonians text is asking a different question. And it's asking the question, what will happen to the people who are still alive when Jesus returns? We, we know that the dead will be raised, but what about the living? What will happen to them? And Paul is answering in this place, just like he is in 1 Corinthians 15.51, he's answering the question, what happens, to the, what happens to the living on the last day? And the answer is that they will be glorified instantaneously, that they will meet the Lord in the air, that they, like a, a, a city rejoicing, to see their king come back in victory, will go out to meet him and will accompany him down to the great judgment day. So even if we're alive on the last day, we won't have to worry about missing the resurrection because the dead will be raised and we who are alive will also be tra 
changed, transformed, caught up, and will meet the Lord in the air and return with him. So that's what's going on there. I hope that I hope that's helpful, Gunnis, and thank you so much for the question. Hey, here's a question about Luther's Greatest Hits by Jeff, who says, I'm a lifelong lay member of the LCMS in my late 50s. I finally read through the Book of Concord for the first time to see what all the fuss contained in the Table Talk uh, radio podcast was about. I supplemented with small books, Augsburg Today, edited by David Masham, also Getting into the Theology of Concord by Robert Preuss. Uh, I'm currently reading Luther on Vocation by Gustav Wingren. It's very deep. But all the quoting of Luther has primed me to delve into Luther's writings. I have Logos software with Luther's works, volumes 1 to 60, and that's more than I've got. Wow. Anyway, uh, here's the question. It says, uh, what um, do you have recommended go-to writings of Luther to focus on? I know you particularly like Against the Heavenly Prophets. Is the Greater Galatians Commentary, the one published originally in 1535? Great questions. Thank you for making theology joyful, uh, says Jeff. Uh, you're welcome. God be praised. Uh, so here's a question. What's the If you're getting into reading Luther, where should you go to first? Um, well, my first recommendation is always the Large Catechism. Jeff has read the Book of Concord, and the Large Catechism is in there, so that's included already. But that should be the first piece of Luther that someone uh, should read. I think depending on what you're interested in, will determine how to answer the next question. I, by the way, Jeff, have trouble reading uh, from the Logos software. I I try. Uh, Sometimes I open it on my tablet, and I can do it that way, but I have trouble reading from a screen. And so this is one of the reasons why we started publishing some of Luther's works. I got frustrated um, years ago that Luther's works were all kind of trapped in these big academic volumes, and I wanted to publish some more of those. So if you go to wolfmuller.co and click the Books button and click on Everyone's Luther, You'll find a bunch of Martin Luther stuff that you can download for free or you can buy. So large catechism is there. That's number one. The second thing to read of Luther's is the small cult articles, also in the Book of Concord. And the reason why this is the next most important work is because it those two texts, along with the small catechism, have uh, an authority in the Lutheran church. They're part of our confessional documents. One of the important things to remember about Luther is that we, we don't think of Luther like the Pope. We don't think of Luther as having the gift of infallibility. In fact, we know that he was wrong. And so we have to be careful when reading Luther, and we have to always be discerning. But those two books, really those three books, Small Catechism, Large Catechism, and the Small Cult Articles, are confessional books. And so that's going to be your number one and your number two. If you like Bible study, I would say that the next place to go would be either Luther's prefaces to the books of the Bible. That's uh, It kind of gives you his introduction to most of the books of the Bible. You can download that um, for free there as well. And then Greater Galatians, that is the 1535. It's greater because it's longer and greater because it's better. So there's two Galatians commentaries from Luther. Uh, the, I think the early one is 1519 or something. The 1535 is where it's at. It's our, our, I think Martin Chemnitz said, if you want to understand justification better, 
then just read Luther's Galatians commentary. Um, if you're a soldier or a, a fireman or a policeman or something like this, it's nice to read Luther's uh, Whether Soldiers Too Can Be Saved. If you'd like a little piece of early Luther, he wrote a little essay called Concerning Christian Liberty in 1520. I think it's great for, especially if you're retired and got a little extra time, to read Luther's Genesis commentary. You can also download his commentary on Genesis chapters 1 to 4 from the website for free as well and read through that. It's it's challenging. It's difficult. It's beautiful. It's, it's really fantastic. Against the Heavenly Prophets is a really important work by Martin Luther, and so also is The Bondage of the Will, although that's difficult and should be read in connection to the formula of Concord written by Martin Chemnitz and the other guys in 1577. But The Bondage of the Will is also a classic piece to be familiar with. So that should get you started. And then once you get those done, shoot me another email, and I'll give you the next list for what to read from Luther. Now, a couple of tips for reading Martin Luther. Uh, Number one, read with a pencil in mind, in your hand, uh, so that you can mark things down. Write the question marks in the margin. Uh, The further back we go the more difficult the reading is and the slower that we have to do. There's so much context that we simply don't understand. And in the the old world, they wrote differently than than we write nowadays. So just be ready for that. But don't let that that stand in the way. So uh, read with a pencil in hand. Uh, Write down your questions. If there's something that's just confounding, then write a question mark in the margin and then just keep going. Uh, Circle the Bible passages. So let Luther do what he does best. That is, let him point you to the scripture. And when you see a Bible passage quoted or referenced, uh, go and track that down in the Bible. Uh, It's important that we let Luther do what he's best at in pointing us to the scriptures. And oftentimes, uh, some wonderful things happen when we see how Luther is using the Bible in places that we uh, would have used it or thought it was saying something different. Uh, and uh, try to try to teach what you're reading or try to mention it, bring it up in conversations. That reinforces these things, and it challenges you, pushes you to make sure that you understand what you're reading. So those are my tips for reading Luther. I hope that's helpful for you uh, there, Jeff, as you begin to dig in, um, dig into some more Luther. I'd love to hear, uh, love to hear how it goes after you get started. Thanks for the question. Here's another Luther question on Luther's anti-Jewish writings by Jacob. Jacob writes, Dear Pastor Wolfmiller, uh, reading your mail, you might ask, what is this? Well, my name is Jacob. I'm a student of theology at Leipzig University in Germany. I'm German myself, currently studying to become a pastor in somewhat Lutheran state church of Saxony, so not a member of the Selk. First things, thank you. You, along with some other crazies like Fisk and Whedon, have certainly played a big part in me becoming Lutheran after coming out of the Pentecostal evangelicalism and trying to find the truth of the gospel in the historic-minded churches. Uh, God be praised, Jacob. That's wonderful. I am, however, now only discovering the full depth of the Wolfmuller iceberg. That might be a good term for it. By recently starting to chastise myself by listening to Table Talk Radio, that is profound punishment. Oh, and I'm also reading some of the books and blogs, especially stuff about martyrs is great. Thank you, Jacob. 
Uh, let's see. Let me skip to the question here. Dun, dun, dun. My request is the following. I will be having a course on Luther's life and theology this semester. And of course, sadly, our faculty is growing more woke by the day. Luther's anti-Judaistic writings will be brought up surely quite quickly. Now, you've mentioned several times that Luther was, in a way, responding on a tractate that was published by Jewish groups first. If you could remember, it would be a great help to know the source or book where this is laid down. Even though we, the small amount of somewhat orthodox students who are sadly not all very Lutheran, must endure all kinds of heresies all day, even from other students and teachers when it comes to our arguments, we are required to make a very strong point in every case. Uh, thank you. You are sincerely, Jacob. Jacob, thanks for the email. Great question. Uh, it is amazing to me how uh, Luther's perspective on the Jews is so widely known. It's astonishing to me, really. Um, I, I was remember talking to uh, Jordan over in Greece, and I was asking what L Luther works were in modern Greek, and he said, there's only one Luther on the Jews and their lies. And my guess is that that was published after World War II or maybe even during World War II to kind of gin up the anti-German sentiment in the country of Greece. And uh, not only that, though, whenever I go on um, any sort of podcast or conversation uh, with anybody who's not Lutheran, this comes up. My reform guy, Chris, when I go on his podcast, he brings this up. Uh, the other evangelicals, it's not the Roman Catholics who love to bring this up, but especially the reformed guys, when they know Luther, they know his what what's called his anti-semitism i don't think it's anti-semitism but it's recognized as his anti-semitism and people ask what's going on there so it's a great question now let's maybe dig into it a little bit uh the first thing is we should remember that we do not think of luther as an infallible teacher we know that he was a sinner that's why he needed to grace of God, just like we do. That's that's why he once his heart grasped the doctrine of justification, it would never let go because that is the hope, the only hope for sinners, the grace and mercy of God in Christ. So Luther was not infallible and his teaching was not infallible. He made mistakes. And uh, when he later in life wrote about the Jews and their lies, he made mistakes. Uh, he, some of the stuff that he said was just flat out wrong. But it should be understood in context. And that context that you mentioned, Jacob, is this idea that he was responding to a tract or a pamphlet. Let me read this. And this is from the introduction to this tract on Luther on the Jews and their lies. I'm reading from the American edition of, uh, of Luther's works, volume 47, from the preface. And I'm looking at footnote 25. So I can probably, if, I, if you give me a minute here, let me... Oh. I got it. I'll I moved the page, so, and I'm I'm reading on the computer, so I gotta scroll down here, so it'll tell me what page um, it's on. Well, maybe we should read it, and then I'll try to figure that out. Luther's intent to write something like a, this present treatise had been intimated at the conclusion of his letter to against the Sabbatarians. Later, he apparently had a change of heart and resolved quote to write no more either about the Jews or against them. However. When, in May 1542, he received from his Moravian friend, Count Schlick, I like that name, Schlick, a copy of a Jewish apologetic pamphlet, together with a request that he refute it, Luther decided to break his silence 
And once he put pen to paper, the full force of his accumulated wrath burst forth. Now the footnote, I'm going to find the page for that in just a minute, but the footnote for that particular uh, reference indicates that we do not know what that pamphlet is. It's no longer in existence, or at least we can't find it. Footnote 26 says, the pamphlet has never been identified. It may well have been the source for some of the statements about Jewish teaching and practice, which are cited by Luther in his treatise, and which are not traceable to other authorities. So we've apparently lost that pamphlet, although we have record of that pamphlet being sent. And that's on page 133, volume 47 of the American edition of Luther's works. Now, what did that pamphlet say? Here's a couple of things that it said, and this gives you a flavor of how the conversation was going with the Christians and the Jews in Wittenberg and in Germany. I'm deep into this thing, scrolling down here um, to find this passage that I want to, oh, and I've gone past it, that I want to read to you. I'm reading now from page 267, Luther on the Jews and their lies, American edition, volume 47. Luther says, since it has now been established that we do not hold them captive, how does it happen that we deserve the enmity of such noble and great saints? We do not call their women whores as they do Mary, Jesus' mother. We do not call them children of whores as they do our Lord Jesus. We do not say that they were conceived at the time of cleansing and were thus born as idiots, as they say of our Lord Jesus. We do not curse them, but wish them well, physically and spiritually. We lodge them. We let them eat and drink with us. We do not kidnap their children and pierce them through. We do not poison their wells. We do not thirst for their blood. How then do we incur such terrible anger, envy, and hatred on the part of such great and holy children of God? Now, that gives you a little bit of the flavor of what might have been in this tract and what the accusations were of the Jews, who said that, for example, Christians worshipped multiple gods and so forth and so on. Now, what do we make of this? First, it's good to understand this fight in context. It's good to try to imagine the, the difficult conversations and fighting and arrangements that were happening in the Middle Ages between the Christian nations and the Jewish people. It was a difficult and terrible time and hard for us to imagine, especially since now our countries are all secular and these are not such big issues. But we want to remember that that Luther did not think of the Jews as an ethnicity, but rather as um, a theology. And that was his big point. He was answering these accusations that the Jewish rabbis were making regarding what Christians taught and believed, and he was responding to those. Now, this on the Jews and their lies, Luther puts forth what the state should do toward the Jews and what the uh, Christian pastors should do towards the Jews, and that's at the end of the book, and that's where some of the worst stuff is. Luther talks about basically the Jews being removed from Germany. He has the idea that they should have their own state and they should be sent there. So it's kind of a, it's kind of an angry Zionism. <laughs> it's not a nice Zionism. Like here's a nice place. It's like, would you just stop bothering us? If you can do so great, go do it on your own. So Luther never had the idea of execution or murder or anything like this, but rather that a place should be provided for the Jews so that this conflict between 
the Jewish people and the state uh, would be would be solved. But again, in that, Luther was simply wrong, and I don't think we need to make any apology for it, just to say that he was wrongheaded, and especially maybe wrong about the economics of it and a number of other things. But, and here's the thing that you're not supposed to say, but a lot of this book and a lot of the Old Testament work that Luther does and a, a lot of his apologetic work in this text is really beautiful. He has a really great argument on the Trinity. He has a really great argument on the prophecies of the Old Testament. And Luther is especially looking at uh, the, the timed prophecies like uh, the 70 weeks of Daniel or Genesis 50 where it says the the rod will not depart from Judah until Shiloh the king has come and he's, he puts those before the Jewish people and says what do you make of this? The prophets of the Old Testament gave you these constraints so that you would know that the Messiah has come and he has come and you've missed him. So a lot of the stuff is really great. So if you can if you can kind of hold your nose to the other stuff, uh, there's a lot that can be gained from this particular writing. Now, if the Holocaust, and, and one of the reasons we have difficulty with this is because of the, the atrocities of World War II and this demonic ethnic cleansing that Hitler was going about in the Holocaust, killing all of the Jews, utterly, utterly wicked. If the Holocaust, can you imagine this, was instead of against the Jewish people, but against the Catholic people, there would be times a hundred more stuff to pull out of Luther and, and talk about how he was the cause of this because his animosity against the Pope is way overboard compared to his animosity against the Jewish people. But because history happened the way it did, and we lament that, then this has a particularly odious, um, an odiousness to it. And in some ways, that's fine. I mean, one of the advantages that history gives us, the questions that come up as we consider these things, is that it lets us reconsider uh, things that we said not carefully in the past and say, now let's be more careful about them. So, Jacob, I hope that's helpful, uh, finding, tracking down that tract, which apparently can't be tracked down, and a few thoughts of Luther on the Jews and their lies and how we should, how we should think of that and how we should consider it. Uh, all the best over there uh, in your studies in Germany, and I pray that, uh, well, I pray you'll be in the Selk soon. That'll be great. Thanks. DJ asks, Hey, Pastor, love your messages. One question, is repentance our work, or is it a gift to us completed by Jesus on the cross and imputed to us through faith and the sacraments and the hearing of the word? It seems to me that most Christians turn repentance into a work that we do in order to work out our salvation. That's very Calvinistic and seems that many Christians are in a state of despair when they cannot affect their own outward behavioral repentance. Look forward to your response. Thanks, DJ. Thank you, DJ, uh, for this question. I think, so a couple of corrections maybe to the email. You mentioned that the idea that repentance is our work seems very Calvinistic. I think that would be the other way around. Calvinism 
emphasizes the sovereignty of God and our total depravity so that our will is understood to be bound so that we cannot make a decision for Christ. The idea that we can make a decision for Christ and accept Christ and believe in him by our own reason and strength is on the other side of that Calvinist debate, and that would be the Arminians. Uh, the Arminians are the ones who emphasize the role of man's will in salvation. But you are right when you say that those who have the idea that repentance is our work uh, are often in a state of despair because they can't do it good enough. How can you ever be sure that your repentance was sincere, that your turning was turning enough, and so forth and so on? And so that becomes a doctrine of despair. Or on the other hand, it becomes a doctrine of pride. Yeah, look what I have done. I have repented well enough. I've done this myself. The, the difference between me and that, that guy on the street that's going to hell and God's condemnation is because I've made a decision. I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. And that other person has not. The, on the other hand, I think coming to the beginning of your letter, there's maybe more than these two alternatives. The idea you ask is repentance our work or is it a gift that's completed by Jesus on the cross and imputed to us through faith and the sacraments and the hearing of the word? Uh, yes, that I think that's right, but we want to be very careful. Rep- faith is a gift, but it is our faith. It is we, the Christian, who believes. And the Lord gives us the gift of faith. He gives us the gift of of repentance, but it is our repentance. It's the Lord's righteousness that is imputed to us through faith. But repentance and faith belong to us, even though they come to us as a gift through the uh, through the Lord's word. So, for example, we have Psalm 80, where we have the refrain, turn us, O Lord, and we will be turned. Repent us, O Lord, and we will be Repented. You can't say that in English, but that's the that's the idea there. Or in Acts, we have these great passages where it says that the Lord, all those who the Lord granted repentance were, were added to their number and so forth. So the Lord gives us the gift of repentance. And this is all taught by Jesus in John chapter 14, where he says, I'll send the Holy Spirit to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Of sin, because they don't believe in me, of righteousness, because I go to the Father and you see me no more, of judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. So we, who can't know the depth of our own sinfulness, are brought that knowledge and insight by the Holy Spirit. He convicts the world of sin. And we, who cannot trust in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ on our own, are given that gift of of righteousness, because Jesus is at the Father's right hand. And we, who cannot overcome sin by our own strength, are given by the Holy Spirit that gift of judgment, knowing that the ruler of this world has been judged. So the Holy Spirit creates repentance in us through the hearing the word. It's really quite wonderful. And so we rejoice in that, that this work of of repentance and even the work of faith is done by the Lord Jesus. I heard someone say it like this, the Lord throws a baseball to us, that's the promise of the forgiveness of sins, and then he quick throws us the glove to catch it. So he gives us the gift of faith to believe the promise that he gives us in the preaching of the gospel. So DJ, I hope that's helpful. I think you are right on to things here, understanding the opposite to be a doctrine of despair. And I hope this is um, will help you in those conversations with your friends. Thanks. Keep in touch. God's peace be with you. 
Here's a question from Quinn who asks, uh, greetings from Canada. Man, this is a very international show today. First, I'd like to thank for your videos. As someone who's recently blessed with being a Christian, they're very helpful. Oh, God be praised, Quinn. That's great. I have two questions. One is, could you give some thoughts on the book of Enoch and perhaps about other books that aren't considered canon, why that is? Secondly, well, let's just stop there. Uh, the book of, book of Enoch is a really curious book. I remember reading it in college and thinking, wow, this is really something. Um, there's kind of two categories of books that are not in the canon. There's the, mm, there's the, for example, the books like Maccabees and Judith that are part of the Old Testament Apocrypha. They stand in that tradition of Old Testament wisdom uh, and are some, they're published in some of the Catholic Bibles and Orthodox Bibles have some of those extra books, non-prophetic books uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, the, the Lutherans and really the Protestants in general have said that the books that we receive are the books of the prophets and the books of the apostles. And so those non-prophetic books are not um, to be concluded. But then there's the what are called the pseudopigrapha. Pseudo meaning false and grapha meaning writing. So the false writing, those who are, they're books that claim to be written by the prophets like the book of Enoch or the apostles, like the Gospel of Peter or the Gospel of Thomas, that um, are generally very Gnostic in character. They have a, they have this sort of veneer of biblical writing, but include a lot of different theology. And the Book of Enoch and some of those other books fall into that category as being simply not genuinely prophetic, not not rightly dividing law and gospel and not coming from the prophets, but coming from, uh, from later times. Now, the book of Enoch is curious because it's quoted in Jude, right? And so Enoch is quoted later on in the New Testament. And so the question is, well, does that mean that the whole book was inspired? No, uh, the, the biblical authors can pull truth from any place. And when they bring it into the scriptures, that particular truth is underlined as a true thing, but it doesn't give authority to the whole writing. So that would be true, for example, from the pagan poets that Paul would quote and some of those things like that when Jesus would quote the Proverbs uh, that the people would use at that time. It's, it's saying that that particular thing that's quoted is true, but it doesn't give that authority to the whole book. So other than that, I don't, I don't know much about Enoch. Maybe I should dig into it. If someone knows more about it, send me a link. Uh, the way to do that, by the way, wolfmuller.co slash contact. That's how all these questions are coming in, which is kind of cool. Uh, Quinn continues. Secondly, I understand that our salvation is without works, which includes faith. I would say that's true. Faith is not a work, but our salvation does include faith. So that's why we know that faith itself is not a work and that faith doesn't come from us. Like we had in the last question, faith is not an act of the will, but is in fact that will which receives the promises of God. Faith is the keeping of a promise, whereas a work is the keeping of a command, uh, which is why faith is passive. It receives God's gifts that he gives in promise. Quinn continues. I'm still having a little trouble understanding where our free will comes into play. If through the word we receive faith, can we resist? If that is true, would the act of simply doing nothing and letting God manifest faith within us count as a work? Please correct me if I've mistaken anything. Really look forward to the possibility of hearing back. May God bless you and your ministry. Thanks a million. Regards, Quinn. Well, I think that 
let's maybe take two steps back and think about the history of this question. What is conversion? The, the early Lutherans understood that conversion was the Word of God and the Holy Spirit coming to change the heart and the will of a sinner. And so our will was not was the object of conversion, not the tool of conversion. This started to get muddled down already with the second generation of Lutherans, even Philip Melanchthon, who began to teach that the will was part of conversion, part of the tool of conversion, rather than the object of conversion. But when we look at the scripture, we see that the will is precisely what is converted. It's what it means to be an unbeliever, is that you do not and cannot believe. Romans 8, maybe the best text for this is 1 Corinthians 2.14, which says, the mind of the flesh does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, nor can it. So the actuality and the possibility are both denied from the natural mind receiving the things of the Spirit of God. So our will, according to uh, the fall into sin, is dead in trespasses, and it cannot do anything toward our spiritual life. All it can do is resist. Now, we're very quickly going to come upon this Philo- uh, a theological question, which is, well, then why some and not others? Because if God desires for all to be saved, and if God is the one who converts the will, then why is not everybody saved? And the answer to that is, I don't know. In fact, I can't know. It's unknowable. The Lord says that any answer to that question is, by definition, wrong. You simply have to trust that these things are true. God desires and works for all people to be saved, universal grace. That God alone converts the will, grace alone. And that some people, astonishingly, do not receive it. Uh, they are condemned. And that's by their own fault. And there's no mm, kickback to God on that. There's no, there's no blaming God for man's own damnation. Now, I do think it's helpful, Quinn, to, when we think about the free will, to notice this difference between philosophy and theology. When we talk philosophically, and ethically, we always talk about man having a free will. We don't want to get into this idea that everything is determined and that one thing is caused all by all the previous things. And so the idea of free will is an, an illusion, that kind of stoic worldview we want to avoid and say, no, no, we truly are free and responsible to live in this world. God gave us that freedom and responsibility. But when it comes to theology, we recognize that that freedom is very, very limited and only refers to the things that are below and not the things above. Our free will, for example, determines what we might do today or where we might go or what color socks to wear or things like that. We might decide what to study in school or what to do for a job or who to marry. But even there, we recognize that our freedom has very strict limits. I might decide that I want to go... Uh, that I want to go from Round Rock to Austin, but I don't have the free will to decide that I want to go from Round Rock to, to Mars, for example. I might decide that I'd like to marry this person, but my free will is very limited by their free will. Are they willing to marry me? So even regarding the things below, we have a freedom that's very, very limited. But in regards to the things above, in regards to God, we confess that we cannot by our own reason or strength, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ or come to him, but that the Holy Spirit has called us by the gospel. So our free will 
uh, we are not free to believe or follow the Lord. That has to come as a gift from him. I hope this is helpful, Quinn. Uh, Let me know what you think. And thanks for the question up there in Canada. God's peace be with you. Another international question on the prosperity gospel. Here's from L.S. who says, To Pastor Brian, my name is L.S. I study theology in Sweden. wonder if you can make a Lutheran response video regarding prosperity teaching. It's not only the U.S. which has a problem with this doctrine. It gains ground when some congregations in Sweden also, not only Pentecostal churches, but low church Lutherans as well. I've heard it said that Bethel and Reading hosts the biggest Bible school in Sweden because so many Swedes study at their Bible school. I fear that many pastors and other church leaders are equipped to deal with this kind of teaching or not equipped. I've seen pastors like John MacArthur and John Piper talk about the subject, but I think we need a Lutheran perspective in this matter as well. Blessings. Well, thanks so much for this uh, email from Sweden. And you're right, this prosperity gospel, it's a problem in the U.S., Uh, I mean, just to think that the biggest pastor in the United States, Joel Osteen, teaches this prosperity gospel and the lies that go along with it. But that especially in a place like um, uh, Africa, where the church is growing so quickly, we have so many problems with the prosperity gospel and, and its claims that being a Christian means receiving physical blessings. Uh, It simply cannot be held up by any sort of reading of the Holy Scriptures, that this would be true. Jesus warns us, in this world you will have trouble, but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. And so what do we expect our Christian life to be like? Do we expect it to be a life of of, of health and wealth? It's simply not the what the Scripture promises at all. And the danger is that when we begin to believe promises that God hasn't given— then we are falling for the snare of the devil by we're being trapped into into a false faith. It looks so pious because we're saying, look, I believe that the Lord is going to do this and that and this and that. But when the Lord hasn't promised to do this and that, when he hasn't given you a word for it, then you're testing the Lord. It's a form of idolatry that looks like piety. And in the end, it leads to either pride or despair. That's all the two choices that you get to without the gospel, pride on the one hand or despair on the other. And so we need to look very clearly at the scripture that talks about having joy in the midst of suffering, having faith in the midst of persecution, having steadfast hope in the Lord in the midst of all sorts of affliction. And we see that in the church, especially in the early church with the martyrs who suffered so many things in the name of Jesus. Like Jesus said to Paul, you're going to have to suffer so many things because you're bearing my name before the Gentiles. So the Christian is a life, lives the life of suffering. And that's what, that's what it means. Uh, that's what it means to be a Christian. So, uh, so we want to say that this prosperity gospel is a false gospel. It's giving, it's giving promises to Christians that God himself has not given. It's misplacing their faith from the word of God to the word of man, and it's putting people in a very dangerous spiritual position. It's, it's opening them up to spiritual attack, and that is particularly bad. We should do a more 
a thorough conversation about this, but I would refer you to uh, Chris Roseborough, who who takes a look at Bethel specifically and a bunch of these false teachers and goes after their sermons. And if you're not familiar with Chris Roseborough, he's not for everybody, uh, but he is a great help in this particular question as well. So, uh, so I'd check him out. Uh, to see what he says. And thanks so much, LS, and uh, for the work that you're doing. And God be praised that you're studying there, uh, the theology in Sweden. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this first episode of Ask the Pastor. Hope it's a lot of fun. Hope you'll send your questions. Hope you'll come to the Issues Etc. conference in July 2021, issuesetc.org for information about that. Hopefully you'll come in August to Austin and listen to Professor Pless teaching about Luther's writings, spiritual care, which is also going to be great. Hope you'll visit the website, wolfmuir.co, where you'll find a lot of references, including all those free Luther books that we mentioned. Uh, You can find those all there as well and i hope that this helps you to recover the joy of theology the lord's word is so rich and so good uh so wonderful that we cannot stop learning just like he cannot stop teaching god be praised talk to you soon